Hello, and welcome to The Potential of Words, a podcast about the amazing absurdity of the English language. I'm Jessica Bertkatcha, and let's get started. Last episode, I talked a little bit about why I love English. And it is an amazing language with lots of nooks and crannies to get lost in if you're interested in that kind of thing. But that's not what made me fall in love with it. I have always enjoyed speaking and reading. And as I said last week, my first degree was in English, and specifically linguistics and how the language has evolved. I took Old English, Middle English. I also learned Gaelic and Italian, which had nothing to do with English, but I really love languages. And I was planning on being a translator. Not a translator from one language to another, but a translator of one type of English to a different type of English. This is usually called technical writing, and it basically means that there are a lot of professions out there, engineers, lawyers, medical professionals, who almost speak their own language, and sometimes they need to tell the average person about something. They take all of the information that they'd like to impart, and they write it down into a document, and then someone else reads it over and makes sure that it is actually understandable to anyone who would want to read it. This translating from legalese to layperson is called technical writing. And I specifically also studied computer science as a way of perhaps being able to translate from incomprehensible programmer into average person on the street. That was my plan. But as part of an English degree, we were required to take part in one type of research. And the research that I chose was a fantastic program called From Three to Three, meaning from age three to grade three. The idea behind this program was that children in certain communities, especially what we call English language learners or English as a second language learners, were missing out on very important cognitive learning abilities. When a child is growing up, they learn something called social reasoning. Technically, social reasoning is defined as the processing of interpersonal cues as a means of copying or learning acceptable behavior. 
But basically, it's reading people around you to learn the rules of your society. I think that some people would like to believe that laws are laws and moral acceptable behavior is moral acceptable behavior no matter what, but this isn't true. The things that are acceptable in one culture might be seen as incredibly rude in another, and on one person's polite greeting might be seen as a complete brush-off to someone else. We learn what is acceptable in our society, our culture, by watching people around us as we grow up. But what do you do if you live in a place where many different cultures all come together? Where you're seeing a set of behaviors in your household with your immigrant parents and another set of behaviors in your preschool classroom. Well, it used to be that parents told stories. We've all heard of fables, teaching stories, the Anansi the Spider, Trickster Coyote, the Ant and the Grasshopper. Every culture has them. And the things that they teach are the process of social reasoning. But it's changed. It used to be that parents told these stories at home. Then, as education became more important and children were spending more and more time in their classroom, it was expected that teachers were telling these stories. In a household where both parents are working, some of them working more than one job, it's not possible to expect them to be able to impart all of these lessons. And it should be something that they can learn in school. Isn't that what preschool and kindergarten are for? To learn to share and play well with others? Well, the problem was that teaching stories, fables, and so on were seen as cultural. And therefore, it was not politically correct to choose one culture's stories over another and to tell them to children. So rather than deciding to pick from many different cultures, a lot of schools decided to stop telling these stories altogether. Three to Three's mandate was to find out what kind of harm this was causing. My part in this experiment was to go into classrooms with children in preschool and kindergarten. They would be tested at the beginning to see what kind of social reasoning they had, what kind of understanding they had about sharing, about following rules, and especially at that age, about the idea of deception, the concept that someone could be thinking a different thought than you, that they could be feeling something and have a different expression on their face, that they could say one thing and mean another. 
it sounds kind of terrible, but we wanted to make sure that kids knew that the truth wasn't always the truth. So, a number of experiments were performed by behavioral specialists who were far more knowledgeable than I. And then myself and my fellow volunteers went into the schools and we read these fables. We read trickster gods and the six blind men and the elephant. We read stories about the tortoise and the hare and the fox and the crane and all of these things. And we made sure that we asked questions at the end to make sure that the kids were listening, were taking in the information. The program went on for eight weeks, and at the end, the kids were retested on their social reasoning. And it was ultimately found that, yes, telling these fables was filling in a gap that had been missing. Now, there is definitely a message to be learned from this, which is that we need to be careful that being politically correct is not destroying the lives of children and erasing cultures. But unfortunately, that is a huge topic that I'm hoping to be able to get into in a later episode. I do need to check my privilege and realize that it's not something I'm qualified to talk about. And I'm still looking for a fabulous, qualified person who will come in and discuss it with me. And hopefully I can learn along with my listeners. But I'm telling you this story because that's what made me realize that language wasn't just something to be studied in a lab, something to be read about and written about. It was a living, breathing thing that continued to affect lives. I changed the direction that I was going with my education. I no longer wanted to be a technical writer. I wanted to be a teacher. And I did. I went to teacher's college and got a degree in teaching English. And I still love, to this day, explaining something to a child and watching them get it. Watching the confusion on their face clear up as something that didn't make sense to them before is suddenly clear. But I also love watching kids make connections that I hadn't even thought of. When I, we read a book and they take the message and they compare it back to their own lives, to things that happened within their families, within their friend groups, within their own personal history. That's amazing. And that's why I love English. Language in general, but English specifically because due to a wide variety of things, English happens to be a very powerful language. It's currently one of the most widely spoken and written languages worldwide with some 380 million native speakers and over 700 million more who speak it as a foreign language. 
It's also the medium for 80% of the information stored in the world's computers, which makes sense since the media that make up the internet are overwhelmingly American in origin. Given the huge colonizing power of the United Kingdom, followed by the capitalist power of the United States, it's no wonder that English is so widespread. Of the 163 member nations of the UN, more than half of them use English as their official language. It's even the language of the sky, with every pilot required to be able to identify themselves and communicate in English. Interestingly enough, people who count English as their mother tongue make up less than 10% of the world's population, but possess over 30% of the world's economic power. This can kind of make them snobs. As I said in the last episode, English is like chess. It's not hard to learn English, and even less difficult to make yourself understood. You can mess up the verb tense and mispronounce about 20% of the words in a sentence, and someone can still understand what you're saying. The problem is that they will probably judge you silently while understanding. It takes a lifetime and years of study to master the English language. In making this podcast, I've discovered rules I hadn't even heard of, and I've made English the focus of the last decade of my life. So it's kind of ridiculous to expect anyone to be able to speak it perfectly. The point is that we don't. No one speaks it perfectly. Still, in the United Kingdom, although some of them probably won't admit it, they delight in having the level of English that you speak define their class system. They can tell you where someone went to school by how they pronounce their R's, and we only have to look at My Fair Lady to see how changing the way you speak can completely alter someone's perception of you. And the truth is, the rules behind why and how we speak the way we do are usually completely ridiculous. If someone asked you to name some of the rules of English, some different things might pop into your mind. Every sentence must have a subject and a verb and that English is what we call an SVO language. Therefore, our sentences are structured as subject, verb, object. I before E, except after C. When two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. Never begin a sentence with a conjunction. These are all things that we were taught when we were younger, but none of them hold true. If you search I before E except after C on Google, you will find a plethora of highly amusing memes, mugs, t-shirts with a variety of interesting sentences on them. I before E, except when your foreign neighbor Keith receives eight counterfeit beige sleighs from 
feisty caffeinated weightlifters. Or I before E except after C, and also when you heinously seize your feisty foreign neighbor's conceited beige heifer from the ceiling. Or I before E, unless you leisurely deceive eight overweight heirs to forfeit their sovereign conceits. So, there are a lot of exceptions. The thing is, there is a rule. But it's complicated and covers a variety of different concepts. And some words come from, as I've spoken before, the Norman. Some come from the Anglo-Saxon. In the intervening years, we've brought in words from Latin, Spanish, modern French, Afrikaans, and a wide variety of other languages. So, yeah, this rule doesn't always spring true. But if you decided to really get into it, you could look at the etymological background of all of these words and apply a rule. But if the rule doesn't always hold true, why do we have it? Let's take the f when two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. Technically, there's two rules there. There are only three sets of vowels that follow that. O-A, E-A, and A-I. Now, obviously, we also have I-E, O-E, U-E, E-E, and an often unused A-E. But technically, those five follow a different rule, which is often called the final E rule, and therefore don't fall under two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. Because when an E is making the vowel in front of it speak or say its name, it actually can do that even if there's another letter in the middle, usually a consonant. Now, it can only do this if there is one consonant in the middle. If there's two, it doesn't have the power, we often tell children, to jump and make the other letter say its name. But none of the other two vowels go walking can do that. But then, when we link up two vowels in other ways, they're not saying the name of that first vowel. O-Y says oi. O-U says ow. A-U says aw. This has got to be confusing. Again, it's a matter of there being more than one rule. Then we decided at some point we weren't going to teach kids those rules. We were going to just pick one of the rules that covered some of the instances and just teach that one and hope that kids could make up the deficit themselves. Every vowel must have a subject and a verb. Well, I proved that that wasn't true last week with our imperatives. Also, when we say subject, verb, object, we implicitly switch that around when forming questions. So why teach kids something that we're going to immediately be able to prove isn't true?
Well, I'm going to find a number of these rules and teach you what they are over the next little while. And if you think they're interesting, that's cool. Some of them might be things that you do unconsciously, like the order we put adjectives in. Some of them might be something that explain a concept that a lot of people find confusing as to why fridge and refrigerator are spelled differently. And some of them make absolutely no sense whatsoever, but they're a fun little educational bit to have in your pocket to pull out at dinner parties, I guess. Anyway, all of this is why I love English. The power it has to change people's lives, the impact it has on brain development, and the tragic, yet sometimes amusing, capacity of a misunderstanding to change the path of history. So, starting next week, it's going to be a lot less about me and generalities. Each week, I'm going to choose a topic in the English language, from interesting historical facts to mental health impacts to amusing anecdotes, and pick them apart for your entertainment. I hope that everyone joins me on this journey through the roller coaster of English, and that by the end of it, you too will have begun your own love affair with this wacky, wonderful language of ours. Thank you for listening, everyone, and talk to you later. Thank you, as always, to Anchor.fm for being the best podcasting platform a girl could ask for, and to the incomparable Mr. Craig Harris for our fantastic intro and outro theme.